This is lesson 12 of our study on the marks of a healthy church. This is the third of three bonus marks that I'm, that I'm inserting into our study. Uh, I do love this book, Nine Marks of a Healthy Church by Mark Dever. I think it is very strong. Uh, there are a few convictions we've picked up along the way over the past almost 12 years having to do with um, subscription to a confession of faith, the importance of catechetical or doctrinal preaching and teaching. And this third mark that I'm inserting is on the topic of inter-church association. Uh, we need to have a, a biblical understanding of inter-church association. Uh, did, I print, did, did, did the outlines get printed for you with the full title, Mark 3, A Biblical Understanding of Inter-Church Association? Is that what it says for you? Yes, sir. Okay. I printed this off and I was missing the second half of the title, so uh, that's good. Um, this is a very important subject uh, for us to cover, I think. I will tell you that this lesson that I'm about to present to you is the same lesson that I presented to uh, the church up at Korsgold when I traveled there with my wife a few weeks back. As you know, they're applying for membership in SCAR BC, and so I went up to teach and to preach, and I taught on interchurch inter association, and I thought this lesson would fit very well for our purposes in this study. I don't mean to be critical of the Nine Marks book. If you're going to talk about marks of a healthy church, you do have to stop somewhere, right? And Mark Dever decided to stop at number nine. But I do think that one thing that could be emphasized is the importance of churches relating to other churches uh, formally, so that there is real accountability, so that there is will, real cooperation that takes place in things like um, church planting and, and missions work. I think it is especially important for there to be that accountability piece. We've talked about the importance of church discipline in this study. And I think one thing that goes along with that is the importance of having accountability to other congregations so that there could be help offered in cases of difficulty or in differences, and we'll eventually get to that. And so I think it's a very important piece, you know, not only for us to have a healthy local church and to be uh, structured properly as a church and to do the proper things as a local church, but to have proper relationships with other true churches as well. Uh, again, I think it is a very important piece, and so I wanted to insert this bonus mark number three into our study on the marks of a healthy church. I'm not going to make a biblical argument for um, interchurch association here in the study. Rather, I'm going to walk you very quickly through what our confession of faith has to say on, on this subject. Um, it is timely. It, it, the the Theology in particular podcast that I host, I, I did a series of three episodes with Jim Renahan on the topic of associationalism. Two of them have already released. The third one will release tomorrow. So if you want to hear a biblical argument for interchurch association, you can listen to one of those episodes. It's either the first or the second, I believe. And if you just are curious about the subject more, you can go and listen to those um, I think we do flesh out some things a bit more than what I'll have the time to do in this study. Well, let's open in a word of prayer and then we'll begin. Father in heaven, do help us as we come to the, your, your word to understand what it says about the church, how we are to operate here locally in this uh, particular congregation, but also give us a healthy understanding of how we are to relate to other true churches. God, I pray that the end result would be that this church is blessed, that the members of this church are blessed, and that you, O oh God, would be glorified in Christ Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. So my objective in this lesson is to provide you with a very brief overview of what our confession, the Second London Confession of Faith, has to say regarding the topic of interchurch communion or association. 
And in general, chapter 26 of our confession articulates our doctrine of the church. And it's in paragraphs 14 and 15 uh, that uh, we learn about interchurch communion or association. One thing I meant to remind you about um, before we started actually was that there's a really nice um, uh, presentation of our confession of faith on our website. You might want to pull that up. Um, masrbc.org backslash LBC, LBC. And um, there you can pull up chapter 26, which might be helpful to you uh, as we go through this lesson. So chapter 26 of our confession articulates the doctrine of the church in general, but it's paragraphs 14 and 15 that speak of interchurch communion or association. We're going to get to paragraphs 14 and 15 eventually, but first I want to provide you with a very brief overview of paragraphs 1 through 13. And I've decided to present this teaching to you by giving you an overview of a very helpful little book. So another book recommendation for you. Okay, We're going through Nine Marks of a Healthy Church. It's a great book. Uh, but I'd like to also recommend this little book for you entitled Associational Churchmanship, written by Dr. James Renahan. He, he's really focused on this subject. His, um, his PhD work was about this somewhat. He's written on this subject over the years. And I chose this approach to overview this little book uh, this morning for three reasons. One, I, I don't think I could do better than what Dr. Renahan has done on this subject, so why reinvent the wheel? Two, I will not be able to cover everything that is addressed in this little book in our short time together, and so you might want to pick it up and, and, and read it for yourself if you want a fuller understanding of the doctrine of interchurch association. And uh, three, I think it is good for me to just introduce you to uh, James Renahan in general. You, you've heard me talk about him before, um, so I know you're familiar with him, but He's produced some very good work on our Confession of Faith. Recently, he has uh, published a commentary on the Second London Confession uh, that is being very well received, and it's very helpful. He's also written on this subject of the doctrine of the church and interchurch association. Um, for example, he wrote a book called Edification and Beauty, The Practical Ecclesiology of the English Particular Baptist from 1675 to 1705. It's a, it's a neat little book. I think it's kind of hard to find nowadays, but if you're interested in this subject, I'd recommend that to you as well. Now, um, I'm, I'm moving very rapidly because we have a lot of ground to cover. Our subject for today is interchurch association. In the introduction to the book, Associational Churchmanship, Dr. Renahan sets the stage by describing three different approaches to interchurch relations. In each of these approaches, there are local congregations like this one, the question is, how do local congregations relate to other uh, local congregations in these systems? And uh, really the question is, where is church power located? Where is church power located? We will return to the theme of church power shortly. In general, we can identify three systems of church government, episcopacy, presbytery, and independence. And for now, it will have to suffice to say that Episcopacy is a system of descending church power. I'll say it again. Episcopacy is a system of descending church power that is centered on bishops. Uh, usually the area of authority is geographic and all the clergy and congregations within these dioceses, that's the term used to describe uh, the geographical area over which the bishops preside, they are subject to the bishops. It's a top-down system of interchurch relations. The bishop has the right and authority to impose his will on those who are under him. Is that clear to you? Uh, episcopacy is a top-down system of church government. Power resides in the bishop and power uh, descends from him. Uh, 
the, Rome, the Roman system is, is like that. Um, and so too is the, I, I believe, the Methodist system and the, uh, the, the Anglican or Episcopalian system is this way too. The Presbyterian system is different. It is a system of ascending church power. So church power starts at the bottom and rises to the top. It is centered on the rule of elders. It starts in the congregation. The congregation elects those who will represent it in the session, which has responsibility for the local congregation. The session has a direct relationship to the presbytery, which is the combined elders in a particular geographical area. Then in the older form, Renahan says, which does, doesn't seem to be commonly practiced anymore in America, the presbytery participates in the next highest level, the synod, which typically was a grouping of presbyteries occupying a larger geographical area than any single presbytery. Finally, the synods were subject to the general assembly of the Presbyterian church. Um, so in Presbyterianism, church power is ascending. It's ascending from local congregations, um, uh, local elderships or, or, or um, sessions on all the way up to the general assembly. And before moving on to the independent system, I want you to notice a few things about the Episcopalian and Presbyterian systems and what they have in common. One, both systems have local congregations. Two, in both systems, church power, to one degree or another, resides outside of and above the local congregation. Did you hear that? In both systems, church power, to one degree or another, resides outside of and above the local congregation. In the Episcopalian system... The bishop possesses church power, and in the Presbyterian system, the Presbytery Synod and General Assembly possess church power. And by church power, I mean uh, these, these individuals or groups have the authority to impose decisions on local congregations. Three, in both of these systems, the visible church consists of the combined congregations, the ministers and the members, and may rightly be called a church. Let me read that again. In both of these systems, the visible church consists of the combined congregations, the ministers and the members, and may rightly be called a church. If I were to ask you, what is the visible church? You as independent Baptists would say the visible church is the local church. But in these systems, the visible church is actually identified with these, these larger collective Bodies. So you have, for example, the Roman Catholic Church, they say. It is an Episcopalian system. It is the Roman Catholic Church. To them, church is the collection of all of these uh, local congregations. That, that is the visible church to them. It's also why you have the Presbyterian Church in America and the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. So whether Episcopalian or Presbyterian, according to their principles, these bodies consider themselves in a formal sense a church. They consider themselves in a formal sense a church, these, these bodies that transcend local congregations. Um, by the way, and I think we will come back to it, we do not deny the, the existence of a universal or invisible church, but we're using these terms differently. Uh, in these different systems. Now let us go on to the independent system, the one that is stated in our confession. It's different. It defines church as a local congregation and refuses to acknowledge anything greater as a church. When local congregations do formally associate with one another, the only churches are the churches represented 
the local churches from various places. So rather than a system of descending power or ascending power, uh, it is a system of reciprocating or cooperating power because this system views all participating churches in an equal light with equal status and equal rights. The church in this system can only be the local congregation. Concerning the question, where does church power reside? In the independent system, church power resides in the local church, period. Are you tracking with me here? So in the independent system, uh, the one that is stated in our confession of faith, church power resides in each local congregation, and it is confined to each local congregation. Now when it comes to the question of cooperation between churches, churches must cooperate Churches, we believe, should be in association with one another. But the association, this body that is the collection of messengers from many churches, does not possess church power. So that there is no church power that exists above or outside of each local congregation. Okay, so I hope you can see why it is important to start with this general observation concerning the identity of the church and the location of church power when talking about interchurch associations. Though it is true that we desire robust and meaningful associational ties, resulting in substantial cooperation, real accountability, and significant assistance when needed, it is also true that the power of the association is limited. The power of the association is limited. The association does not possess church power, properly speaking. The association has the power to welcome churches into the association, to make determinations and give advice when needed, and even to disassociate, God forbid, but it does not have the power to impose its determinations and advice on local congregations. For example, associations cannot buy or sell church property, appoint or remove ministers, discipline members. Why? Why does the association not have this kind of power, church power, properly speaking, to appoint and remove ministers, to receive and to discipline members? Because the association is not a church. The association is not a church. It is simply a voluntary communion or association of churches. That is what an association is. Can you see the difference then between the Episcopalian, the Presbyterian, and the independent systems here? Um, we'll come back to this in a moment, uh, this idea of uh, church power and, and this voluntary or com- uh, communion and association of churches. But I want to continue on very uh, rapidly uh, through Renahan's little book here uh, to set the stage for paragraphs 14 and 15 of our confessions. So let us, let us move rather quickly through Renahan's book. Uh, let us move rather quickly through Second London Confession 26, 1 through 13. In, in chapters 2 and 3 of associational churchmanship, Dr. Rinehan does something very important, and we'll have to fly through these chapters for the sake of time, but I want to set, but I want to at least make mention of what he does here. In chapter 2 of his book, he situates chapter 26 of our confession, which is about the doctrine of the church. In the context of the whole confession, and if you've ever read or listened to Renahan on the subject, you'll know that he likes to do this. He thinks it is important to consider each individual chapter of the confession in light of the whole, and I agree with this approach. In particular, he wants us to see that chapter 26 is situated in the third unit of our confession, which runs from chapter 21 through 30. Renahan gives this unit the heading, God-Centered Living, Freedom and Boundaries. 
Chapter 21 is about Christian liberty. Uh, it, it insists that we are free in Christ, but of course this does not mean that we are free to do whatever. Uh, no, instead it means that we have been set free from bondage to sin, Satan, and the fear of death, and the commandments of men, so that we might worship and serve the Lord according to His Word. The chapter on the church is in this section, and the point is this, in Christ... We are free from the opinions and traditions of men, and we are free to obey the Lord. And one of the ways we must obey the Lord is in the formation of our churches. God's Word does tell us how to organize our churches, brothers and sisters. When I was going through my undergraduate program and even in the Masters of Divinity program, I, a lot of times you would get the impression that... Uh, as it pertains to how exactly we organize our churches, that's kind of up to different, there's differences of opinion. It's a matter of wisdom, you know. It's a matter of uh, practical concern. So the, the scriptures aren't clear. We just need to use the, the system that best works. So it all comes down to pragmatics. I'm not saying I ever heard any professor say that. But when the doctrine of the church was addressed, that's kind of the, that's kind of the flavor that, that you would get, you know, that you have all these differences of opinion, it doesn't matter, pick which one works best, but our conviction is different. We say, no, the scriptures do reveal how our churches are to be organized, our local congregations, and also the scriptures reveal how local congregations are to relate to one another. And so the point is this, we must heed God's word and cast off the opinions and traditions of man wherever they contradict. In chapter 3 of his book, Renahan provides us with a very rapid overview of Second London Confession 26, 1 through 13. Chapter 26 of our confession is by far the longest chapter in our confession. Next to the chapter on baptism, 29, 26 differs the most when compared to the Westminster Confession of Faith. As you, I'm sure, know, our confession is very, very similar to the Westminster Confession, the confessions of the Presbyterians and agrees with it on most points of doctrine. We cannot take the time to consider paragraphs 1 through 13 of our confession in detail. A rapid overview will have to suffice, suffice and I will, I will slow my pace eventually once we get to paragraphs 14 and 15, brothers and sisters. But paragraphs 1 through 4 of chapter 26 describe the invisible and visible aspects of the church of Christ. Paragraph 1 asserts that there is a universal invisible church. There is a universal and invisible church of Christ. There, there is one church of Christ. It is the total number of, of the elect throughout the world and who have lived throughout history and who will live. Uh, they are a part of the invisible church. It is the church that will stand before the throne of God in the new heavens and new earth and worship and adore Him forever and ever. There is one church of Jesus Christ. We do not deny this. Paragraph 2 turns our attention to the particular local congregations made up of visible saints. Paragraph 3 clarifies that no church is perfect. All are imperfect and subject to faults. I, I do take comfort in this uh, acknowledgement, by the way, in paragraph 3 of our confession in chapter 26. There's, there's no perfect churches. All are, are subject to mixture and error. We should not be content with mixture and error, but at least we can acknowledge that all churches do struggle with problems of different kinds. Now, the first half of paragraph 4 is very important. It's very important. It says, The Lord Jesus Christ is head of the church. 
in whom, by the appointment of the Father, all power, I want you to notice that word, all power for the calling, institution, order, or government of the church is invested in a supreme and sovereign manner. So, Second London Confession 26.4 is very, very important. And I want you to notice a few things about the statement. Firstly, it clearly establishes who the head of the church is. Who is the head of the church? The Lord Jesus Christ is the head of the church. There is no other head. So the Pope of Rome is not the head of the church. And our confession deals with that problem in this same paragraph after the statement I have just read. The last half of paragraph 4 clarifies that he alone is the head of the church. He shares his headship, supreme authority, over the church with no one. Again, not the Pope of Rome nor any other Secondly, I want you to notice the word power. That word is very, very important, not only in this paragraph, but in the rest of the chapter as well as we will see. The Lord Jesus Christ is head of the church in whom by the appointment of the Father all power is invested in a supreme and sovereign manner. Thirdly, notice what Christ has the power to do. What does He have the power to do? He possesses all power for the calling, institution, order, or government of the church. Who has the power to bring churches into existence by calling sinners to faith and repentance? Who has the power to do that? Answer, Christ does. Who has the power to institute local, local congregations? Christ does. Who has the power to order and govern these churches? Christ does. He is our authority. He is our head. So, paragraph 4 of chapter 26 establishes this very important principle. So much can be said about paragraphs 5 through 13. They are beautiful, I think, and very important to our doctrine of the church. But here is the one thing that I want to emphasize with you today for the sake of time. Though Christ possesses all power for the calling, institution, order, or government of the church in a supreme and sovereign manner, He expresses His power through means. He grants His power to local congregations. How does Christ express His power to call sinners to faith and repentance? Are you tracking with me now? I, I just think about this. Who has the power to call sinners to faith and repentance? Christ alone does. But how does He do it? He does it through means. So again I ask, how does Christ express His power to call sinners to faith and repentance? Paragraph 5 says, In the execution of this power... Wherewith he is so entrusted, the Lord Jesus calleth out of the world unto himself through the ministry of his word by his spirit. So how does he call sinners to repentance? He calls sinners to repentance as the Holy Spirit works through the preaching of the word of God. So sinners come to faith and repentance as the word of God is preached by ministers of the Word of God in the congregation, as it is proclaimed by the members of churches out in the world as we share Christ with others. So who, who does it? Christ is the one who does this, but He does it through His Word proclaimed and by the power of His Holy Spirit. How does Christ express His power to institute churches? The end of paragraph 5 says, Those thus called... He commandeth to walk together in particular societies or churches for their mutual edification and the due performance of that public worship which He has required of them in the world. 
And so Christ expresses this power to institute churches through His Word. He commands that those who come to faith in, in Christ form churches. How does Christ express His power to order His churches now? In paragraph 7, He says, "...to each of these churches thus gathered, according to His mind, He's declared in his mind, declared in his word, he hath given all that power and authority which is in any way needful for their carrying on that order in worship and discipline which he hath instituted for them to observe with commands and rules for the due and right exerting and executing of that power. As I'm reading this, I'm realizing I provided all this for you in that outline, didn't I? Yeah, forget about the website thing. You didn't need to go there. It's in your outline. And these words are underlined, aren't they? Power, 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 power. (laughs) Who has supreme power? Christ alone. How does He execute this power? You're beginning to get the point, aren't you? He he executes this power through His churches. Uh, To each of these churches thus gathered according to His mind declared in His word, He has given all that power and authority, which is in any way needful for their carrying on that order in worship and discipline, which He has instituted for them to observe with commandments and rules for the due and right exerting and executing of that power. Who then has Christ entrusted with church power? According to our confession, and we believe according to the Word of God. Who has Christ entrusted with church power? Each local church has been entrusted with church power. Each local church has been entrusted with church power. But what about officers? What about elders and deacons? Nothing has been said of them so far, So far, the only thing that has been said is that Christ calls His churches into existence through the Word and by the Spirit working. His Word commands us that local congregations are to be formed and that power and authority has been given to these local congregations. So that's all very generic. But what about elders and deacons? Uh, Has the Lord called them to do anything in particular? Have they been given any particular kind of church power? Paragraph 8 addresses this. It says, a particular church gathered and completely organized according to the mind of Christ. By the way, I think the language here is carefully chosen. You can have a true church uh, without elders and deacons, but it's not a church completely organized according to the mind of Christ. Can you imagine a situation like this where you have a, a congregation of believers? Let's say they have an elder and they have a deacon, but both, God forbid, pass away. Does that church cease to be a church in that moment because it is without an elder and deacon for a time? No, it's still a true church, but it is not completely organized according to the mind of Christ. I continue now to quote paragraph 8. A particular church gathered and completely organized according to the mind of Christ consists of officers and members, and the officers appointed by Christ to be chosen and set apart by the church, so called and gathered, for the peculiar administration of ordinances and execution of power or duty which He entrusts with them or calls them to do to be continued to the end of the world are bishops or elders and deacons. Uh, Pastors, bishops, elders, these terms are synonymous more or less and, and deacons are mentioned here too. So then, each local church, the whole church, has been entrusted with church power But the officers have a special responsibility to execute the power or duty which God entrusts to them. They are to administer the ordinances. They are to lead in matters of worship and discipline. So, who alone is head of the church? What's the answer, brothers and sisters? Christ is. 
He has been appointed as head by who? By God the Father. He shares his headship with no one at all. And who possesses power in the church in a supreme and sovereign manner? Again, what is the answer? Christ does. He has the power to call, institute, order, and govern His church. And how does He execute His power? How does He, how does he carry out his, his power? He executes His power through His churches. Sinners are called to faith and repentance through the preaching of the gospel as the Spirit works. Each and every local congregation has all the power and authority it needs to carry on that order and worship and discipline which Christ has instituted for them to observe with commands and rules for the due and right exerting and executing of that power. That is again Second London Confession 26.7. This is what we see in the Holy Scriptures. Uh, we see that local congregations are established. We see that elders are given particular responsibilities over those local congregations. Churches are called to do church discipline. Churches are called to carry on the public worship of God. We see no other power. Uh, we, we see power given to no other entity outside of local congregations in the New Testament Scriptures. I suppose at this point you may be wondering, what does all of this have to do with associationalism? Because that is what this lesson about is about. And, and I want to say a lot, actually. In just a moment, we will define associationalism in a positive way and discuss some of its benefits. But first, it is very, very important to understand its limits. We must understand its limits. When we talk about associationalism, when we talk about being a part of an association, we need to understand what the association is not. It is not a church. This body or collection of messengers or elders does not possess church power. Local congregations have church power. Elders within local congregations have a certain kind of power within the church instituted by, as instituted by Christ. But the association itself, this, this collection or this coming together of churches, does not possess church power, properly speaking. I want you to notice this about paragraphs 5 through 13. Christ is said to give church power to local congregations only. No other persons or organizations outside of the local church are mentioned. Again, who has the power to carry on that order and worship and discipline which Christ has instituted for us to observe? The local church only is the answer. No other person or body is mentioned. Let us now briefly consider chapter 26, paragraphs 14 through 15, where associationalism is defined and described. Paragraph 14 says, As each church and all the members of it are bound to pray continually for the good and prosperity of all the churches of Christ in all places and upon all occasions to further it, everyone within the bounds of their places and callings and the exercise of their gifts and graces. So the churches, when planted by the providence of God so as they may enjoy opportunity and advantage for it, ought to hold communion among themselves for their peace, increase of love, and mutual edification." The phrase, as each church and all the members of it, refers to local congregations like this one. As each church and all the members of it, uh, each church, this church, uh, all of the local churches in our association, all of the local churches throughout the world, 
Um, so it refers to local congregations like this one. Now the question is, how are local congregations to relate to other local congregations? Firstly, our confession presents us with a universal obligation to pray. As each church and all the members of it are bound to pray continually for the good and prosperity of all the churches of Christ. So prayer is one thing that we can do for other local churches that are near to us and for churches that are far away, even on the other side of the world. And what are we to pray for? What are we to pray for? We are bound to pray continually for the good and prosperity of all the churches of Christ. If we consider the phrase at the end of paragraph 14, we can also say that we are to pray for their peace, increase of love, and mutual edification. So we are to pray. And we must be faithful to pray for other local congregations, brothers and sisters. In the Lord's Day, sir, the, the, the morning service on the Lord's Day and our corporate prayer gatherings uh, in our homes also, we need to be faithful to pray for other uh, local congregations. Uh, you know, um, when we gather together uh, every quarter as an association, one thing we do is share prayer reports. And it's been our custom for some time now to present written prayer reports and those prayer reports are disseminated to you after each messenger's meeting. I would encourage you to be sure that you read over those. Uh, and even when a church does not present a prayer, written prayer report for whatever reason, the church is at least listed there along with, I think, their officers. So we need to be faithful to pray for the churches in our association. Uh, we need to be faithful to pray for other true churches as well in this valley and, and even to the ends of the earth as we are aware of them. Secondly, paragraph 14 mentions associationalism in the words, so the churches planted by the providence of God so as they may enjoy opportunity and advantage of it ought to hold communion among themselves for their peace, increase of love, and mutual edification. Now, Dr. Renahan has argued in this little book and in other writings too that the phrase ought to hold communion among themselves is an exhortation for churches to enter into formal association. Communion, he argues, means association in this context. Churches, with the ability to work together to advance this cause, that is to say the cause of the good and prosperity of the churches, ought to hold communion among themselves. This is associationalism. Communion is the equivalent of association, Renahan says on page 52. So then, our confession teaches that churches ought to enter into formal association with each other, they ought to cooperate together for the good and prosperity of the churches. But notice there are limitations to this. They may do so only when planted by the providence of God, so as they may enjoy opportunity and advantage for it. This phrase is a simple acknowledgement that not all churches are able to enjoy such communion or association with other churches given their remoteness. Associationalism is not a requirement except when the providence of God makes it possible, Renahan says on page 54. In the 17th century, churches would need to be planted by the providence of God rather close to one another, geographically speaking, in order to enjoy the opportunities and advantage, advantages of interchurch communion. But in modern times, given the ease and speed of transportation, it's possible for churches separated by great distances to associate with one another. We're blessed with a tight-knit, geographically speaking, and spiritually speaking, association here in Southern California. Um, but think of how difficult it would be to, to associate regularly with the church, let's say, up in Bakersfield, or up in Palmdale, or over in L.A., uh, Centinella Baptist Church. 
it would be so much more difficult if we lived in the 17th century to associate regularly, even with these churches that today, you know, you get in a car with nice seats and an air conditioning and you drive and you're there in, you know, an hour and a half or maybe two in, in worst case scenarios. Um, so modern transportation has made associationalism uh, much more uh, possible for churches that are located at a distance from one another. Uh, so what should the aim of our interchurch communion or association be? The promotion of peace, increase of love, and edification. Our aim is to see local congregations increase in peace, love, and edification, um, and for edification and for peace, love, and edification to flourish between the churches. Uh, finally, we come to paragraph 15, where the practice of associationalism is described, and I'd like to read it, and then I'll make a few comments about it. Paragraph 15 says, "In cases of difficulties or differences." either in point of doctrine or administration, when either the churches in general are concerned, or any one church in their peace, union, and edification, or any members or, member, any member or members of any church are injured in or, in or by any proceedings in censures not agreeable to truth and order, it is according to the mind of Christ that many churches holding communion together do by their messengers meet to consider and give their advice in or about the matter indifference, to be reported to all the churches concerned, howbeit these messengers assembled are not entrusted with any church power, properly so called, or with any jurisdiction over the churches themselves, to exercise any censures either over any churches or persons, or to impose their determination on the churches or officers. This paragraph is very, very important, for here the practice of associationalism is taught. What are associations to do? What power do associations have? What power do associations not have? All of these questions are addressed beautifully in this paragraph. The first thing that I would like to draw your attention to is the little phrase found in the middle of the paragraph. It is according to the mind of Christ. Did you see that right at the heart of paragraph 15? Stated differently, it is the will of Christ. And then I might ask you, how do we know what the will or mind of Christ is concerning how His local churches are to be ordered and governed and how His local churches are to relate to other local churches? How do we know? We can know the mind of Christ by studying the Scriptures. That is the answer. Now granted, I have not attempted to argue our doctrine of the church from the Scriptures this morning, our time together being very limited. I chose to provide you with a sweeping overview of Second London Confession 26 instead, but of course... It is my belief and our belief that this doctrine of the church is the one taught in Scripture. Christ is head of the church. We are bound to obey Him, therefore. We are bound to obey His mind or His will concerning the church and not the traditions or inventions of man. And where do we find His will? We find His will in the Scriptures. And what is the mind of Christ concerning the question of inter-church relations? It is according to the mind of Christ that many churches holding communion together do by their messengers, meet to consider and give their advice in or about the matter indifference to be reported to all the churches concerned. Clearly, this statement envisions some difficulty that needs to be addressed. No church is perfect, remember. Even the purest churches under heaven are subject to mixture and error, 26.3 says. And when a church or churches are experiencing difficulties they can appeal to other association churches for help. Let me say that again. 
when a church or churches are experiencing difficulties, and I think it is implied here, it's difficulties that they have not been able to resolve themselves. You know, they've tried everything and they are at the end of the rope, as it were. They can appeal to other association churches for help. This is what the first paragraph, first part of paragraph 15 describes. In cases of difficulties or differences, either in point of doctrine or administration, wherein either the churches in general are concerned, or any one church in their peace, union, and edification, or any member or members of any church are injured in or by any proceedings and censures not agreeable to truth and order, it is according to the mind of Christ, etc. Now, Renahan points out that many potential situations are covered here. It may be that there are difficulties in points of doctrine or difficulties in points of administration. I think we are to take difficulties to mean questions or problems. It may be that a church is struggling with a doctrinal question or a question about how to operate or to do with or what to do with some difficult situation. Um, it could be that a church is struggling financially. In all of these cases of difficulty, a church could appeal to the other churches in the association for help. Um, I've done this many times uh, informally with other pastors in the association where I'm just faced with some perplexing issue and I pick up the phone, another blessing of living in our modern age, right? I pick up the phone and I, I say, could you help? We're experiencing a difficulty, we're experiencing a problem. We're, we're experiencing a, something that we don't know quite what to do with. Can you offer advice? Sometimes churches will raise questions in a messenger's meeting uh, so that there can be deliberation amongst all the messengers. You know, hey, here's something we're experiencing. What do you all say? Can you help? We're experiencing a difficulty. Can you offer advice? Paragraph 15 also mentions differences in points of doctrine or administration. Now, differences is a stronger word than difficulty, isn't it? Perhaps a church is plagued by disagreement or even conflict. Again, an appeal could be made to the association churches for help. Notice that paragraph 15 envisions situations where diff- the difficulties or differences are confined to one local church and situations where the difficulties or differences are between churches. The point is this. Whenever the peace, union, and edification of a church or many churches in an association are disturbed, an appeal can be made to the association for help. Lastly, notice the phrase, or any member or members of any church are injured in or by any proceedings and censures not agreeable to truth and order. This is a reference to cases of church discipline. The local church has the power and responsibility to discipline itself according to the scriptures and in love, as you know. But what are members of churches to do when discipline is not done according to truth or order? What are those injured by unjust discipline to do? If the church is in a formal association with other churches, the members can appeal to the association for help. By the way, the Scarby C. Constitution outlines how to go about this process, but the principle is stated quite clearly here in 2615. The first section of 2615 succinctly states one of the benefits of associationalism. The association can provide help in cases of difficulty or differences in points of doctrine or administration. Help can be given whenever the peace, union, and edification of a church or many churches in an association are disturbed. Also, the association can help members or officers in cases of spiritual abuse. But how is the association to help? As I've said, the Scarby C. Constitution provides some guidelines, but our primary guiding document is the Confession, which we believe is a faithful summary of our supreme authority, the Scriptures. 
So what does our confession say concerning how the association is to operate? I want you to look again with me at the second part of 2615, where it says, It is according to the mind of Christ that many churches holding communion together do by their messengers meet to consider and give their advice and were about that matter indifference to be reported to all the churches concerned. I want you to notice a few things about this statement, and I'll have to move very, very quickly through them. One, it has in view churches that have entered into formal communion or association with each other. While it is possible to pray for and encourage other churches in a general way, it would be very difficult, I say even impossible, to do what is described here outside of formal association. It would be analogous to a pastor attempting to shepherd a non-member or a member of another church. So, what is in view here is churches who are in formal communion or association with each other. Two, the churches in the association are to give their advice in or about the matter indifference. And this advice is to be reported to all the churches concerned. The word advice is important. The association is to look into the matter, whatever it is. They are to come to conclusions and make determinations. But these conclusions and determinations are to be delivered to the churches or churches, the church or churches, as advice. Again, this advice is to be reported to all the churches concerned. So if it is one church that this problem is confined to, the advice is to be given to that church. If it is two or three churches, the church, those three or two churches are to be addressed. If it is all the churches that are affected by some problem, then all the churches are to receive the advice uh, delivered to them. Three, the churches holding communion together are to give their advice and are about the matter of indifference. And they are to do this notice by their messengers. Those three words are very important too. By their messengers. A messenger serves as a representative of a local church. He is to be selected by the church to serve as a representative Ordinarily, messengers are elders or deacons, though the Scarby C. Constitution makes provision for a situation where no officers are available to represent the church. And the reason why the association is to act through the messengers of the churches should be clear. Whole churches cannot possibly assemble to consider cases of difficulty or differences. It would not be possible, nor would it be appropriate. And by the way, Acts 15 is listed as a support text for this principle. If you were to read Acts chapter 15, you would notice that this was the practice of the early church, even during the lifetime of the apostles. It's fascinating. When difficulties and differences threatened the peace, unity, and edification of the church and the truth of the gospel itself, many churches came together in Jerusalem to consider the matter through appointed messengers. So elders were sent, representatives were sent, the apostles were there, and they considered the problem, and they delivered their determination and advice to all the churches through them. Finally, we come to the last section of 2615, and I want you to notice that the question of church power comes back into view. And the purpose of this statement is to limit the power of the association and to situate church power, properly speaking, to the local church alone. The first word is, howbeit, or however, Howbeit, these messengers assembled are not entrusted with any church power properly so called, or with any jurisdiction over the churches themselves to exercise any censures, either over any churches or persons, or to impose their determination on the churches or officers. So do you get it, brothers and sisters, the limitations of the power uh, that an association has? 
What can the messengers of an association do when they assemble to consider difficulties and differences? They can make determinations. Of course, they have to do that. They have to come to conclusions. And they could give advice to the churches concerned. They can publish their advice. They even have the power to disassociate from a church should the church prove itself to be deficient in the standards required for admittance into the association in the first place. But notice this, the messengers of the association do not have church power, properly so called. They do not have jurisdiction over the churches themselves. They cannot exercise any censures either over any churches or persons. They cannot impose their determination on the churches or officers. Why? Because the association is not a church. It is an association of churches. If a doctrinal error must be turned from and corrected, it will need to be corrected by the local churches. The association may help by making determinations and giving advice to the churches concerned, but the local church must act with the power that Christ has entrusted to them. If a pastor is to be ordained or removed from the ministry, the local church will need to do this. The association may help by making determinations and giving advice to the church concerned, but it is the local church that must act with the power that Christ has entrusted to it. This is so important. These things cannot be done by a group outside of the local church. They must be done by the local church themselves, with the officers doing their part and the members doing their, their part. The messengers of the association have the power to reach conclusions and to advise they have the power to publish their advice to the church's concern, and they have the power to take away what they originally gave, namely membership in the association, should the church provide itself deficient. But the messengers of the association do not possess any church power outside of the local congregations over which the Lord has made them overseers and deacons, if indeed they are overseers and deacons. So, uh, brothers and sisters, with uh, the negative five minutes I have remaining, the benefits of associational associationalism are very great, but if we are to thrive in our interchurch associations, we must understand the power of association and its limits. The power that Christ has entrusted the local church must not be set to the side or infringed upon as we seek to cooperate together for the church's peace, union, and edification, and for the furtherance of Christ's kingdom on earth. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray that we would have a robust ecclesiology, and by this I mean that our churches would be organized according to the mind of Christ as revealed in the Holy Scriptures. I pray that this local congregation would be properly ordered according to the Scriptures. I pray also that we would associate with other congregations in the way that the Scriptures describe. O oh Lord, I pray that we would be stronger for this. I pray that our associations would flourish. I pray that we indeed would enjoy the peace uh, the unity, the edification that is mentioned in our confession of faith, I pray that also we would be used by you to further your kingdom on earth as we labor in this place and as we co cooperate together towards these ends. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.